If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zeck. I'm Glass Tire's publisher. And you're joining us this week for part two of a two-part mini deep dive into conversations around public art. So if you didn't listen to our last podcast with John V. Munthera-Falmsby, I would recommend, you know, it's not required listening to understand what's going on here, but it touches on a couple different topics around public art. Um, Today, in part two, the podcast you're listening to now, I talked to Tommy Gregory, who used to run the Houston Airport Public Art System. Uh, He currently does the same thing in Seattle for their port authority. Um, But he's had a lot of experience just working in the realm of public art for, I think we decided, some odd 20 years. So this conversation is meant to uh, elucidate some things that may be a little less uh, familiar to you, either the art listening public or the art viewing public, or to you, the artist who is interested in applying for public art. Public art in and of itself has its own set of challenges, and it's its own real genre for an artist to work in. And Tommy and I get into some of those details of what that means. So with that, enjoy the conversation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? I mean, in addition to the things that I just said. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. Um, yeah, my name is Tommy Gregory. I'm currently the senior manager and curator for the Port of Seattle's public art program, and uh, specifically based at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, that has the largest amount of capital improvement funds, which is where most of the public art projects are happening. Uh, But it is a port-wide program, so I will be working on maritime and uh, economic development projects through the port. But I am also uh, an individual artist and and an independent curator from time to time. Um, Yeah, I think that you you gave me a a fairly nice introduction because I do uh, revere my time in San Antonio and in Houston. And um, I'm trying to maintain that foot in the door still in Texas, but also doing good work here in Seattle. Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to add you as an element of this conversation is um, is because of your extensive experience dealing with public art, not only with you know the Port Authority and the and the Houston Airport, but um, you've like helped s- uh, city or city contract entities with public art programs. Um, you've also w- when we were talking, I had forgotten that you worked with like Luis Jimenez doing public art for him. So you've really kind of had a, 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 a you've seen a wide uh, swath of what doing public art means and have had to deal with a f- many different types of projects and many different types of personalities within that. 
I feel very fortunate to say, Brandon, that I am, um, of, of my other colleagues, um, that I've probably had the widest range. Uh, and and, and I, I mean that in a, a humble way, is like I've, I've gone from high to low. I, I started, like you said, working with Luis uh, Jimenez in 2005, 2004 and 2005, working on his major public art piece at Denver International Airport before he tragically passed away. I was uh, fortunate to be his studio assistant. So basically I was a maker. I was um, doing kind of grunt labor and also some very fine uh, artisan work that he taught me how to do in order to execute his concept. But also, you know, luckily because of that experience with Luis and realizing that public art can be a job, it can be a career. Uh, it is, so, it's not a pipe dream. Uh, artists are doing it. <laughs> and that, um, it elevated me and uh, in, in inspired me, I should say, to work with a lot of other artists. I ended up being a, a studio assistant to uh, artists throughout the state of Texas working on major public art projects. Uh, and then of course, smaller gallery projects, uh, which you know, inspired me enough and kept me involved in the arts to a professional degree that I went to get my master's. And when I came out with that, I was um, lucky to fall into a position being the public art specialist for the city of San Antonio, which led me to um, revisiting my hometown or, or not visiting, <laughs> returning to my hometown and being uh, uh, on the public art side of things multiple times over. I worked for the Houston Arts Alliance and the Civic Art Department. And then, uh, like you mentioned, with the Houston Airport Systems for about five years, uh, we helped really elevate that program and diversify that collection. Mm -hmm. Well, it, you're just, your swath of experience is really why I wanted to bring you in on this conversation. Um, what did you take away from those early years of doing public art? Like how do those early years of being really on the artist side of it and in addition, your own work, just being an artist and knowing how artists think and knowing how artists approach to making work, how does that influence the way that you run a public art program now? I feel it. I kind of wish everybody would get that taste and experience in order to be able to speak that language. Um, and communicate with the maker, I always have that hat on first. And sometimes that, that kind of bites me because I, I, I do, I heavily favor the artist in these scenarios. Uh, but I also expect the like respect in return from the artist to say like, you know, this is a job, you're a project manager, you're a public art administrator or director or curator, and you're trying to help them see their idea to fruition. It's a two-way street and uh, public art is not for everybody. Uh, we've talked about this in the past, but I, th I think it's similar to Casey, my, my partner, who, uh, who uh, is a writer. And one of her strengths as a writer when she does interviews is she's coming to it um, with a lot of understanding and respect to the craft and the artist that she's talking to. So she could ask the right questions. I think that's what's benefited me as a public art administrator over these many years is my uh, constant um, making. I'm always in the studio when I can be, I should say, not always. Uh, I'm in the studio as frequently as possible, but it keeps my hands dirty. It, it's, it's challenging me mentally and physically, which makes me understand the woes of the artist. It helps me, uh, you know, I've been a, an installer. I've been um, an assistant. I've been a curatorial assistant. Uh, and, you know, in the public art side, I've been the uh, director and the senior manager and administrator. And those kind of things have all led to what I think have been really successful, innovative projects and bringing real work to the public. And that's, I think, answering your question, Brandon, is I think that me being having all those different hats is always making me try to challenge not only the artists, but the people I work for, whether it's the port or whatever administration that is trying to, to invest their money in cultural assets, that they are 
putting work out to the public that is thought provoking and real. It's something that could be seen in a museum or could be seen in an artist studio, but it's in the public realm. And that's important for people to see because for the most part, for many years in this country, we got design enhancement projects, not art. We got things that were really, I mean, it could be, you know, extremely forgettable because that's what you know, there were certain administrations throughout this country that didn't want to challenge people with with visual culture, but um, they or you got things that were just pretty and forgettable. And I think that art can be pretty. It should, in a lot of ways, I think it should have some attractive level to it in the public eye because you have such a wide range of an audience. But it also should be challenging. It should make people think and and, and look at the world differently. And, and that's always been my motivation. Well, and that's uh really, I mean, acknowledging that's a really hard thing for an artists to do also to maintain their ethos in their practice while also adapting it to I mean probably the largest audience that they will ever have like more people pass through airports than go see blockbuster exhibitions at the met yeah wanting to make sure you do that right but also in a way that really maintains your own character and gets across what you're really what your core belief is as an artist. It's a tricky tightrope to walk. Yeah. And it is something that could be daunting because you're right there. You're not going to have a, a bigger built-in audience in this country. I don't think than a major airport hub. I, I, I boast sometimes that I think 7 million people visit the Louvre a year. Uh, Seattle Tacoma International Airport sees about 56 million people a year. So, uh, I mean, it's just, it just dwarfs the size of people who are, but those people, again, they're, when you're going to the Louvre, you're expecting to, expecting to see historical, strong, visual culture, fine works, fine art. When you're going to an airport, it's, it's sometimes just, it sneaks up on you or you walk by it and don't even notice it. So there's, there's that challenge too. It's like, just because you have the built-in audience doesn't mean they're going to acknowledge the work or even some, if it's poorly done, they won't even feel it. But if you look at, if you hopefully one day you get to come up and visit SeaTac um, with me, um, or SEA as they call it now, is the acronym for Seattle Tacoma International Airport. But um, we've moved a lot of works around because the airport is one of the longest running public art programs, SeaTac is, in the United States. It started collecting with civic dollars back in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's why we have works by like Luis Nevelson and Frank Stella. And even then there was a public outcry, like, I can't believe you're spending $25,000 on a Frank Stella, which is now tremendously uh, shows what return on investment could look like. But um, when you walk through that airport, you, you could see that a lot of the acquisitions happened when they were experiencing a lot lower traffic you know, in the 70s, they weren't seeing the same, you know, traffic flow internationally or, or even domestically. And now it's the uh, one of the top five or eight busiest airports in the United States. And the artwork needs to be presented in a way that those visitors and the people who work there can experience in them, experiencing those works the way they should be. So I've moved a lot of work around. We've done a lot of conservation projects. And I feel like I did the same in Houston. I say this a lot and, I, and in San Antonio, where if I work for a collection, the first thing you should do is maintain it. Make sure that it's the works you own are in good condition, and then that should give you good faith efforts from the powers that be that they should invest more to get more work and get work from, I love starting local, going national, and then eventually international. So you get that range of what the world has to offer, but you also have a hometown feel. So people know like that's so-and-so who lives around the corner their work is in this major collection, you know, rubbing air elbows with the Louise Nevelsons and the Rauschenbergs of the world. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I 
liked about what you did in Houston and that I feel Houston is continuing to do even uh, under Alton Delaney, who's the current director there. Like it is really continuing to buy local and to highlight the idea that there is just as good uh, art happening here as elsewhere. Like, and I think weirdly, you and I may have talked about this before. I don't think, I don't know if we've done it like on a video or on a podcast, but I, I really think that some of these institutions, these kind of local collecting institutions like airports, like I'm even thinking about some hospitals that have really good public art collections or really good art collections that are installed in public places. They're almost serving as some sort of repository of local work in a way that we would think would tend to be the local museums, but the local museums are maybe either have a different focus or they're buying more nationally or they're not buying at the same clip that like airports and hospitals or these other sort of public institutions are. And it's part for decoration, but it's also, it's nice when you can get someone in there who, like you said, takes it a little farther than that. The evolution of the public investment in, in art in this country, anyway, I mean, we go back to the WPA, sorry about that WPA era to now, but um, there's, you know, it's ebbed and flowed and in support uh, nationally but the thing that we've lost, I think, is the independent, um, local, normal human being uh, who goes uh, to a gallery if they're lucky. You know, we don't know what this. I don't know what the statistics are for major cities, but uh, it's infrequent. And those that collector base. I mean, just also the increase in, in in population in this country. You don't have like as many artists as there are. There's not that. I mean, there should be that many collectors, but there isn't. I think that there's. People are looking at the way they spend their dollars also because the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. Art is a luxury. When I, I'm glad that public art in major cities anyway are maintaining that investment in public art because not everybody can afford to have original work in their home. There are people who do and still decide not to for one reason or another, but um, I think there's power in, in public collections. There's power in art in general. I mean, I don't think that Hitler went and stole artwork because he thought it wasn't valuable. He knew the value in it, whether it was propaganda or just own, you know, kind of cultural, you know, domination. But public art is super important in this country. It's also not always been managed properly. So we see a lot of things that um, aren't really hitting. And that that's really bad because what that's doing is it's giving a bad impression to future leaders who are like, well, I flew into so-and-so. I don't want to name airports or, or other public art entities that, that might've done things a little bit, you know, obscure or wrong. Um, but you see that. And then that that's the thing they take away. And then like, well, why do I need to support public art? I think that it's important that those people who are making decisions on how public funds are used as as it pertains to the cultural realm, that they go to the ones that are doing it right. Go to LAX, go to Denver, go to Hobby Airport. Hobby Airport's incredible. That, that uh, I mean, I have to take my hat off to because I do get a lot of credit for what happened at Hobby uh, between those years that I was there. But a lot of it had to do with what Matthew Lennon and Jimmy Castillo laid down a foundation, in addition to Pam Ingersoll, who was uh, my predecessor. But you know, they put down a good foundation for me to come in and just bust the red tape and, and make a lot of acquisitions happen. And acquisitions from artists that, if you look at it, like, ton of those artists were under 40. Uh, they were, they were a lot of them. I mean, we leveled the playing field. It wasn't a male dominated profession anymore at that airport. We, uh, I don't know what the statistic is today, but it, it's, it's gotta be an equal male to female or non-binary uh, inclusion in this collection that, that was predominantly older Caucasian males. And, you know, there's, there's a time and place. And I think that I'm really happy that I got the energy and I saw the success 
success and being able to to break the red tape there to bring it to a place like Seattle that's very progressive and thinking about the possibilities and getting some support to see those ideas that sometimes seem a little bit um, outside of the norm to fruition. And anyway, I'm so glad that we're having this discussion because public art to me, obviously, you know, I'm passionate about it. I live and breathe it, but it's just not public art. It's also art. I, I ran an independent during the pandemic, an independent uh, art space in my neighborhood from the generosity of a developer who just let me use a 3000 square foot space for over a year. And that was just incredible for the community, for myself to get to know the neighborhood and the, and the creative public around me. Um, anyway, it, those, these kind of discussions are important to have. And I think that I want to share that energy with people and know that whether it was in Texas or here in, in Washington State, that um, there's, there's a lot of people with my energy that exist. They just have to get together in a room and make interesting things happen. Yeah. Well, and I think people are, I mean, because it is such a part of you know, maybe airports aren't a part of daily life for most people, but it, it's a it, it's something that really impacts you. And like airports specifically, you know, it's a very specific space. It has a very specific purpose to get you from point A to point B, but it also causes people a lot of <laughs> tension. So be to be able to have a space that is not only well designed, but has the potential to be relaxing for the right type of person is very important. Um, I I want to know what you think. So I'm going to try not to ask just a bunch of platitude questions, but I want to have a conversation with you about public art that, you know, you've been in this game for so long, but what do people not know about public art or what do artists not know about public art? Like, have you ever met an artist who's like, well, yeah, public art's great, but that's really not for me. Like if someone came to you and started to go that direction, what would you say to them? Well, it's interesting uh, because, yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer. It's a big question, Brandon, because, and I'm super glad again that Glass Tire, uh, that y'all have been really great, um, informative. It's been an informative resource for people to go read past articles talking about public art or interviews like this. But the thing that I think artists, studio artists, people who don't really want to do public art to begin with, those are the kind of artists I want to work with. You know, because I feel like there's a certain humbleness to them. And also there's a, the, like, how do you give somebody, I mean, how do you break an artist? Like I remember Troy Stanley was one in Houston where I don't know why he never got a big public art commission, but we set something up where it was an invitational and it had to happen quick. And he was an artist that we invited and he won a commission and just knocked it out of the park. And I'm like, that's what happens when an artist who, who might not have the interest in filling out all the bureaucratic kind of paperwork that comes along with some submissions when they get that opportunity and get a budget what can they make that's so exciting to me to see like what can they do joanne fleischauer another one in texas that just always hit it out of the park you give her a dollar she'll give you twenty thousand in return i mean just really really great uh artists that that may may not want to go through that minutia but again that's why my job exists is i'm i'm there to kind of be the conduit between the artist and the you know, governing body, whatever it might be. But I think that a lot of artists, that's the thing is like they, the thing they should not have when they look at public art is the fear. Like, oh, I don't want to apply because I don't want to be told no. We all get told no. You should apply even if you think that your work, if you want to be in museums or if your work is specifically for commercial galleries, but you see an opportunity that strikes your fancy for lack of a better term, apply to it. Because for the most part, they're all free. It doesn't cost any money for these artists to apply. So that's one thing I think artists should know is, don't be afraid of rejection. Also, if you if you never get a public art commission, you're putting your artwork out where almost every time, if you look at my panels, they're, they're artists and curators and, and conservators who are world-renowned sitting on these panels looking at your work. 
So it's just great to get your work out there and let people see if you don't get picked for that commission, they might think about you for a future curatorial project. Uh, but all, uh, the one thing, again, back to like it not being for everybody is um, there are public artists that go into this thing thinking that it's going to be easy because you have a big budget or, and, and, you know, small projects, big budget projects, public art is just difficult because for the most part, it's like when I was doing those, those projects with Volker and the silo, I felt like the silos rejected art. And you had to work really hard to do something interesting in there. Public art is that way. It doesn't, it doesn't reject art. Airports don't reject art, but they're not built for it. They're not a white wall gallery that have patch and paint ready for your, and lighting's not like always pristine. The public isn't, is going to be brutal to it. You have to take all these crazy things into consideration. So I just hope that people, they don't be afraid of public art. That's my first hope. Um, they don't feel bad if they're rejected for it, because again, it's not for everybody. And if you get it, be prepared to work in a team. And uh, know that the administrator, regardless of their stress levels, they're they're on your side. And uh, a good one like me, and I think that my colleagues like Alex Herrera, who's now in Austin, Annabelle Guavic, who's here in Seattle, she's an amazing public art uh, uh, coordinator and eventually was going to be a public art manager or director. She's just that dedicated and smart. But I think that, you know, trust those, those people in those positions. Uh, and again, I, like I said, not everybody does it right. So if you can't trust the administrator, that's what public art managers exist for too. You can hire, uh, you know, cons consultants or public art managers, or, you know, there's, there's teams of people or independent artists even who might know how to navigate it, who've done it before. Team up with people. Don't be afraid. And also don't, you know, you can't bite the hand that feeds in a way. Like I can't tell you how many artists have been frustrated at me. And I was like, you have no idea the sleep I lose trying to make sure that your piece gets in there safely and that you get paid on time. You being there or the public art manager, or the, you know, whoever's in charge being there as like the facilitator, it reminds me, maybe this example is very esoteric, but it's also very arty. I think of like printmakers from like Gemini Gel in the 1960s calling in artists that they wanted to work with and artists coming in and being like, well, I do my artwork this way, so how can I make a print like that? And then the printmakers would have to figure out some sort of concept or some sort of like it basically invent new tools so that the artists who they're bringing in can make their work in the way that they want to make it. And so that the printmakers can help them make the best work they possibly can. Um, and that's, I feel like that's something that, you know, it's hard for any of us to admit we don't know how to do something. Like, it's just not something we like to do as humans. Like, admitting ignorance is rough. But I feel like in order to do public art well, or at least until you've gotten so deep into public art that it just comes, you know, second nature, you're going to be doing a lot of that. You're going to be doing a lot of admitting that you don't know what you're doing and asking for help. Yeah, and also the size of these projects are ridiculously daunting and in a lot of ways one of a kind and unique. So nobody's proficient at that part. To say like, oh, I'm going to go into this grand hall that's four football fields long and you know 60 feet tall, and I know exactly how to handle the nuances of this installation. It's not. It's just not possible to do alone. Uh, I, mean, I shouldn't say it's not. It's very rare if you're able to do it alone because you did mention there's there there are seasoned public art professionals. Um, in this country and beyond um, who probably aren't intimidated by anything and um, and they know who to talk to. And, but again, I bet they're humble in a way and they probably got there by asking good questions and also trusting subject matter experts. But again, I think a lot of the responsibility and this, this is if, if anybody at the Port of Seattle hears this or even back in Houston where, or when I was working there, if we're investing the public dollars 
to give an artist an opportunity to make their masterpiece. As the, the owning, the, the future owner, like the port here, do everything in your ability to make it successful. So if you're the engineer or the architect, help that artist out because they have to know like their area of expertise is A, B, or C. It's not going to be this, uh, you know, er, permitting and, and, you know, engineering specs usually. You have to you have to have guidance in order for that thing to happen successfully. So I think that that's a little bit of, of, of a, a sore spot for me is like I don't I'm trying to get my counterparts and I have here in Seattle. I think I've got some awesome architects uh, at the port who are always supportive and like help us over the finish line. Uh, but get them excited about it because it's for everybody. And, and when it comes to the ownership, it's an asset that everybody there gets to enjoy. And if we do it right, it gains in value. There's not a lot of things that you buy at the airport that you could, you know, keep forever. Like the chairs, if some of those chairs are as comfortable as they might be at the moment, in two or three years, they can be worn to death and nobody wants them. And they're depreciable assets. Art, if handled properly, is an appreciable asset and gains value. And it's also, again, it's a reminder of a time. It's a record. It's a it's a stamp of, of that particular moment, what the what the maker was doing, what the airport was doing, uh, as far as how, how they wanted to challenge the public and put something monumental or very, very small and like almost like a flower blossoming, like a little moment you get to catch. Public art doesn't always need to be big either, Brandon. Like that's another thing. It's like, you could do lots of little moments. And we did that at Hobby where these cool cases and I've implemented cases here that are uh, kind of sporadically and very elegantly placed where you could have rotating exhibits or permanent small works on display. So that kind of runs the gamut of what you can show and what the, the, um, the city or the port, uh, what their assets can be from large to small scale works. Anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating conundrum to constantly have. Like, how do you, how do you make people excited about these things that, you, you mentioned earlier, or you asked earlier, like another thing people don't understand is simply like what CIP is. Like I use that term a lot because I've heard it from San Antonio to Houston to here, um, capital improvement projects. And basically what that means is your budget, which you usually say is your CIP budget, capital improvement project budget, is generated by construction projects. So when there's a major construction project in city in the city of Houston, there was an ordinance that meant you had to have 1.75% set aside for um you know, the public art investment. Here, we call it a policy. So we have a, a, a policy directive that the port commissioners have been very supportive of and, and helped return because there was a long time where it's half percent. When I got hired, we fought to return it to a full 1% again. Uh, but that's a, a policy there that states you have to comply with that. So when you have a major construction project, you pony in a little bit of money, it goes into a little art pool. And then uh, somebody like me and my team, we, we come up with locations and work with project managers or CMs, construction managers, and we come up with concepts. We put up RFQs, which are requests for qualifications. So there's a bunch of these acronyms I think artists won't, won't learn immediately. But the more you apply, the more they become secondhand knowledge. They don't really teach it in school. I was lucky to teach at the Glacelle before I left Houston, and I taught a public art kind of one-on-one -on -one class. And uh, I, I loved it. And you saw energy. And a lot of those artists are now in public collections because of the, those just those little bits of knowledge. Don't be afraid of things. Apply to things, and don't be don't don't feel bad if you're if you're rejected. But learn the little nuances of it, where, where the budget comes from. And that's, again, important for the people I work with to know. Like, I've had people who are like, I don't want you taken from my, my budget, construction managers. I'm like, wait, I already took from you. <laughs> you know, the accounting department takes 1% because you had, you know, it was over the threshold. So it's, in, you know, you need to be in compliance. So don't be mad that uh, the money is being spent because it's being spent to beautify your overall project. 
And at the end of the day, you're not cutting a ribbon in front of a bathroom or something. You're cutting a ribbon in front of an artwork. So the, the powers that be know that it's on the, it's on the cover of like every, um, you know, budget report we get, there's a, there's one of an art piece kind of gracing the cover of that budget report because it's, uh, it's what defines our region. Uh, and, and it defines, you know, the country. I mean, one of the most famous things you're going to see when you look up the city of Chicago is the bean or the cloud gate by Anish Kapoor. It's, it's public art defines it. I'm glad you talked about funding because I feel like that's another thing, like in order to fully wrap your head around public art, you need to realize where the money's coming from, what the pool is, what that means. And just, it's a crucial component of just understanding how your project fits into what's actually happening. Like it's a part of this new building and you're being built into it just as the stairwell is being built into it essentially. Um, Yeah. And I feel like until you, fully wrap your head around it or until you just hear that you know one or 1.75 or you know whatever it is where you're doing public art until you hear that over and over you don't it doesn't fully click where that money's coming from it's like someone's just coming and dropping a pot of money and that's what you get and actually it's no it's this very calculated thing and i think it's also a really unique thing that it's a really unique way i suppose that the u.s is in committed to investing in in art like we do that to some extent but still overall government support for art compared to many countries is not good but i find it weirdly comforting or i i admire a little bit that you know universities have this percent for art public works uh, projects and airports and things have this percent for art like it really is a way that we're at least trying in a way that we really don't have to do. I, I look at it from two different sides. Like I, I, we're definitely trying. I think, I think that we could be doing much better. Like to say you have 1% and an artist gives you like an A, B and C design, for example, a proposal, and you're this major airport, since that's what we're talking about, uh, my day job. Um, and the airport sees that the first option for us to choose from is really nice, stays within budget. Second option to choose from, uh, maybe a little abstract, uh, maybe a little confusing, asking for a little bit more. And then the C choice might be this brilliant thing that nobody's ever seen before. And it might be a little bit over, or maybe significantly over that 1%. I mean, the 1% is like a rounding error if you really look at the overall budget. So I don't want to say like, I'm not looking that gift in the mouth. It's it's great that we have it uh, in major cities. And like you said, universities do it really well. Um, UT has a great program. But um, if you see that C choice and like the director of this or whatever the uh, overall program might be, whether it's the Port of Seattle's Maritime Division or the Aviation Department, like, well, let's let's find another fifty thousand to see that masterpiece, you know, because if you're in the right stage too, like plan right, uh, support the artist with more structural or, uh, you know, cutting, making sure they don't have to pay for permitting, find ways to save the artist money if it's not always just throwing money at them. Like I've always been good at that. I remember working in San Antonio and like there was a, a, an a installation budget just to go on a detail of, of a little micro project, but it was on this really uh, busy bridge and you could only work while the, the, you know, there was a Mason working on the outside and had custom scaffolding on the outside. And they were like planning to, you know, say, so the artist, you could come in as soon as this, this Mason is done and you could do your, your ceramic inlay. 
the artist is Diana Kersey. She was great to work with. Diana has to then figure out how to erect scaffolding or get scissor lifts and boom lifts to get access to that spot. Can we just arrange with the Mason to leave their scaffolding up? And they were like, huh, like this is to me like the most obvious thing, but they didn't think about it that way. And again, for liability reasons or waivers and whatnot that had to be filled out, but that saved the artist. Well, and it was also a contracted part of her budget in theory for the project. So it's like, that's what it's there. That's what the budget's there for to pay that and to make the project happen, which is true, but I totally get what you're saying about, well, if we don't have to pay for that, we can add a couple more details or we can add a whole element to the project. Yeah, or in, in what I think is, I don't know why certain um, you know entities that do public art projects, why would it be so bad that the artist saves money and is able to pay themselves more of a project management fee to make a better living wage? So I'm like, if they if they save you money, but it's already contractually obligated to their project, and it, you know we've already dedicated it, that artist should be able to pay themselves for more administrative time, or maybe more travel, or gas, or studio rent. I mean, there's the, the, that's one thing that a lot of non-art people don't realize, or even art people, for that, for example. If you have a million dollar budget, that's not going in my pocket as an artist. No way. So many people benefit from that from that those funds. It's art handlers, con conservation specialists, permitting, engineers, architects, like you have to, I mean, des designers, photographers, uh, um, somebody helping you generate a, a more articulate artist statement. So writers, like, all these people benefit from that. Uh, and, you know, and then fabricators, um, uh, material providers, you know, you're buying structural steel or really fine glass work. I mean, I don't know. I, I always look at it as like, the web of benefit that comes from a public art project is way beyond just the artist. And uh, that's a misconception that I'm hoping the public realizes is public art is a job creator. And it's it's also outside of all the other benefits you get from just being reminded that you're human when you see it. As Well, it's not really a counterpoint, but would you also talk, just to piggyback off of that, the importance of if you're an artist who's doing a public art project, you know, realizing that, of course, you're not just putting $300,000 in your pocket, but the importance of building out like an artist fee and making sure that you actually do get paid for your work. Because I feel like projects that I've seen in the past, I have seen things go wrong where someone gets a huge budget and a huge project and it ends up, you know, they get paid a dollar an hour for what they put into it, which is horrible and which is what you need to be able to have like good management and good business acumen essentially in order so that you get what you deserve for actually executing this project. Exactly. I think that's a great segue into that, how to handle a project, um, not just as a professional artist and executing your design and seeing it safely to fruition, but how do you make sure that you're paying your bills and also make sure you're paying the people who are helping you. So at work, I mean, that's again, why my position exists and why um, I think if you look around the country, public art programs, they're under supported when it comes to, um, you know, full-time staff, you know, for the, when I was in Houston, I, I was lucky to, to work with the Houston arts Alliance as the public art director for the airports, but I was a one person employee over a multi-million dollar collection that spanned three airports. That's crazy. Uh, and, and again, you know, everybody could always say times are tough, but these are still assets that need to be cared for. So, um, you know, whether it's hiring consultants to support programs or uh, making sure that the internal, I mean, there's every major airport or 
city uh, or port authority has an accounting department, maybe maybe assign them. And I guarantee I've worked with accountants with them super excited to work with artists because they're like, oh, awesome. I'm like, it's like fresh clay to mold because they don't really have the first clue over to writing out a legit budget. I mean, not saying, and I'm not dumbing down artists, there's brilliant artists who do know how to do this, but for the most part, it is a little bit overwhelming when you see the, the amount of that goes into um, calculating a professional budget and then being able to maintain time so that way you don't lose that budget. Uh, uh, but you're right, you need to pay yourself. Um, I remember talking to Donald Lipsky about this. He said, I think like the first three or four public art projects he did, uh, he didn't make any money on, but he said, I did that on purpose. Cause I think he had like a different, I mean, he might've been teaching or had a different uh, form of income coming in, but he was like, I wanted to spend every single dollar to make the best possible piece. So as a new artist, I think it's really good to touch base with somebody in, in the, in the city that you're in and say, Hey, how did you succeed in that? Can you give me a budget template? You don't need to recreate the wheel. I think that's something I realized too, is like, like I give kudos to my predecessors, like Matthew Lennon. I worked really well with Jimmy LaFleur in San Antonio and they had templates set up. And I mean, I totally modified those to fit the way I wanted to manage things. Um, but yeah, I think good project management comes from team endeavors and then making sure you never want, I've never had an artist lose money to my knowledge. Everybody's made a, a, made a, a living wage and um, to, you know, sometimes to my lack of sleep because I'm trying to figure out how to save money. But um Anyway, I, I, I digress. I kind of went on a rant. Um, what haven't we talked about that you think it would be really important for, you know, artists applying the general public, the art viewing public, the art interested public? What what else would it be good for people to know about public art or the process or the hurdles or the benefits? There's so much. There there are so many nuances and, and oddities to public art. I like I feel super lucky to have worked in some major programs between San Antonio, Houston, and Seattle. And everyone is is run little little different, right? So there's not like a, a blanket, like here's here's the here's the book, follow it. Uh, every administration handles them a little bit differently. So you can't uh, just roll one into the other. But being um, active as an artist is really great uh, to get to to get to know fabricators, to get to know different mediums. Um, like don't because public art you end up like if you're a painter you you know painting sometimes don't hold up well in airports. You know canvas and oil on canvas gets damaged. But what I think is awesome is if you're a painter uh, and I mean <laughs> Dixie Friend Gay has made a killing on this. She's been super bright and smart on how she's evolved her public art practice and turning those brilliant designs and paintings into mosaic tiles that are, are just electrically beautiful. And, uh, and also a stand that tests the time. They're easy to clean. So as, a, as an airport, you can just spray them down, wash them down and, and you know, carry on. But I think that's one thing too, is don't pigeonhole yourself if you're interested in public art. Think about different mediums. But um, it's it's a I don't know like I don't know where to to start with that I think understanding the budget is really important like if you see a public art opportunity that's available to apply apply to it don't be afraid of that um, I mean I can't tell you I've been rejected and, and I'm <laughs> like literally it's my day job uh, to 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 review these things and I, you know my, my ideas are sometimes a little um, uh, conceptual in nature and that's not always like the most favorite decision. Uh, for public art administrators or or select selection panels picking for public collections, I do want to change that kind of stigma of like staying away from work that's challenging that way. I think you need to have a little bit of everything. Um, you know, artists have to realize that the public art administrator you're working with is also 100% on your side. 
Uh, so you got to come into that with that kind of attitude that we got to work well together. Um, the one thing I taught, or every time I, I did a talk the other day at Cornish with Charles Modede, who's an amazing critic and, and writer and filmmaker in Seattle. Uh, he invited me to talk at his class because we we're going to do a temporary art project. And I told everybody there, I was like, take a picture of this slide. And it was, it was of a commission meeting where they were deciding on public art funds. And I was like, know the power of your voice. I think that's something I, I love to tell artists from high to low. Um, know the power of your voice and don't be afraid to send an email to your council member or something and say, where's the public art in my neighborhood? Because they have money and they have interests. And, and uh, there's no neighborhood, I think, that, that thrives without some kind of visual culture because it, it, it connects human beings from all different backgrounds. And that to me is like the power of public art. It's like, keep it, keep it in the community, raise the standards and the level of that work too. Like, you know, I don't want to see another thing that says welcome to something. I don't know. I, I, I'm constantly available too. I think that that's one thing is like, I, I noticed that from Matthew Lennon in Houston when he was there managing, uh, the, directing the civic art program is the availability of those people, they love what they do. So if you have questions, call us, call, I mean, Brandon, you know that I'm, I'm, if I don't answer a call from somebody, I'll call back, but I love talking about public art. I love answering questions because I never thought I would make a living out of this. When I worked with Luis, I was just like, um, so I'm so happy to be next to this brilliant human being who's, you know, making a, a something that has never been seen before. It's going to be in this extremely public place. And I'm learning all these details and these, these uh, fabrication skills. It's just, I feel like I got to always give back. And uh, I think that's why so many times I've wanted to quit this job and be like, oh, I'm, I'm I just want to be an artist. This, this being a bureaucrat is very difficult, but it, I think it, you need to have people like me and Matthew and, and other people throughout this country, Lydia in Chicago, uh, Sarah Cherifelli Cer Cer uh, in, in LA. I mean, like to do those jobs, because if not, you're not gonna have somebody who cares the same way. And I don't know, I, I'm so glad that I, I, I'm still in this game. I hope that I could do this for a long time and I always wanna be available for questions. So I think anybody who lives in Seattle or even knows me from Houston, if you have a public art project, know that I'm the kind of person who wants to talk through them. And I'm glad Glass Tires gave me a platform to kind of do that. Well, Tommy, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking time to talk public art, which I know is one of your favorite things. Um, and uh, we'll have you back sometime and we'll continue the conversation. Well, thanks so much, Brandon. It's good to see you. Good to talk to you as always. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Tommy, for being on the podcast. And uh, thank you for coming with us on part two of the deep dive into public art. I hope that uh, conversation was interesting and maybe a little fruitful to understanding what actually is going on whenever you see public art in a public space. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with more topical art topics. And until then, go see some art. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.